Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring what theology might look like in the coming millennium. My guest is Peter B. Todd. Regular viewers will remember an interview with him not long ago talking about his own near-death experience. In addition, he is a Jungian-oriented psychotherapist practicing in Sydney, Australia, and he is the author of the individuation of God, integrating science and religion. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Peter. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. It's a great pleasure to be with you once again, to be, to be communing with somebody who has so many similar uh, feelings about the world and about the divine. I think that's correct, Peter. I think we do. I suspect that you are a fellow mystic. <laughs> I, I, you know, I can't claim to have had a lot of profound mystical experiences, at least not in this lifetime, but I feel a great affinity for uh, those who have. Mm-hmm. I'm especially interested in, uh, I really am, in the idea of a uh, theology for the next millennium, because it it seems to me that uh, these days, uh, probably for the last three or four hundred years, if not longer, there's been a terrible schism between science and religion. It's as if uh, if one of my colleagues uh, maintains that at the Council of Trent, I think it was in the 17th century, they, the scientific world and the religious world sort of agreed that uh, they would operate in separate domains, that the uh, religion would uh, incorporate within itself everything having to do with consciousness, and science could explore the physical world. Uh, and it seems to me that we're ready now for uh, a reunification of of these things. I expect it'll be a, a very long process. It'll probably take hundreds of years for this theology to come together completely. But I noticed in reading your book, The Individuation of God, that you've put many of uh, the pieces, uh, you've sort of lined them up as, in, in terms of what such a theology could look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, uh, you emphasize the idea of uh, quantum computing taking place at the cellular level, that, that it's quite possible that microorganisms have already solved the problem that universities all across the world are working on right now, how to build a quantum computer. Absolutely. And this would be an example, quantum computing and quantum information, of the rudimentary mind-like qualities uh, that great thinkers have referred to prior to the advent of consciousness, which, which Pauli referred to consciousness as a late-born offspring of the unconscious soul. So I think what you're referring to there with quantum computing and microorganisms and prior to the emergence of Homo sapiens and reflective consciousness is mind, but at a pre-conscious 
not yet conscious level, a late-born offspring of the unconscious soul or anima mundi in Jung's sense. Mm-hmm. And and because you're very interested in the work of Teilhard de Chardin, you focus quite a bit on uh, the process and the theory of evolution and how uh, that has to be taken into account in, in any kind of theology. Yes. Well, of course, to go back just a little bit to the schism that you referred to, you're quite right, that existed for 400 years. And the prophets of the quantum revolution, and particularly people like Niels Bohr and Wolfgang Pauli, who collaborated with Jung, their mission was to deal with the so-called psychophysical problem, implicit in that being a reunification or remarriage of these irreconcilable opposites of... Uh, science and religion, so that meant with quantum physics the reimportation of psyche into science in the form of the so-called personal equation. Now, could you define the psychophysical problem for our viewers who who may not know just what you're referring to? Well, the problem is that of there being an intelligible relationship between mind and matter that being a profound ontological and epistemological question. So various people have tried to find answers to that question, certainly Tayar, but if you take Jung and Pauli or David Bowman and his colleagues, we have one ontological foundation being the Ulus Mundus of Jung and Pauli, from which the mental is approached via Jung's collective unconscious and the material via quantum unlocality which through symmetry breaking becomes the epistemic split of mind and matter. Just as in the Bohm scheme, the implicate order gives rise via enfoldment to the epistemic split or epistemic reality of mind and matter, whereas the implicate order is one of undivided wholeness like the Unus Mundus of Jung and Pauli. Doesn't it also refer to the idea that the uh, collapse of the wave function, so to speak, in uh, quantum physics seems to be uh, dependent upon the consciousness of the observer in quantum physics in a way that uh, was never thought to be the case in uh, classical Newtonian physics? Well, of course, I don't think it applied in classical Newtonian physics. That now is regarded as a limiting case in a much more overarching theory of physics, which includes the quantum revolution. But since the quantum revolution, it's been no longer possible, of course, to keep the psyche excised or consciousness removed from this scientific enterprise. And it was baptized personal equation by Jung and Pauli. I am under the impression, though, that the... Even today, in the physics community, there are many physicists who uh, reject the Copenhagen interpretation of the the importance of consciousness and the collapse of the wave function, and are are trying to uh, imagine a physics of the future that does not require consciousness. I wrote in one of my papers, in answer to that precise question, that I think a lot of those scientists are still adhering to the religion or doctrine of metaphysical materialism and any notion of mind or psyche being incorporated into science is to them 
heresy and anathema because it conflicts with their religious devotion, as Jung would say, to the religion of metaphysical materialism. So they can't allow themselves even to consider these unpalatable uh, realities which have to do with psyche, mind, or even soul and uh, the divine, panentheistic God, for example. So here, this is an example of doctrine precluding observation. So your goal in, in developing a new theology is to find a way to incorporate consciousness and even the notion of the divine within a, a framework that is not hostile or antagonistic to science. It's within a more holistic framework of understanding the cosmos and evolution and our place in it. One of the arguments that you uh, bring up with regard to evolution and the possibility of uh, evolution itself being driven by a uh, uh, something within uh, the uh, living species, even at a cellular level, something that we referred to earlier as possibly quantum computing, is mm-hmm. uh, is the idea that statistically speaking, uh, life itself is very improbable. I know in your book you refer several times to the argument that if uh, the evolution of life was strictly based on uh, random mutations and natural selection, even uh, though the universe is 13, 14 billion years old, uh, the first protein shouldn't have evolved yet let alone a whole living ecosystem. Yes, even a single protein should not have emerged by chance alone. So we're talking about almost a miraculous function for chance in those who continue to think that way. Which is still, I think, the orthodox view in biology. I absolutely agree, and hence the resistance to any ideas of, you know, reincorporating psyche, mind, psyche or mind or spirituality back into a worldview which is holistic. Now, Tehard de Chardin, who is an inspiration to you, talks about the Omega Point as, uh, I, I think he thinks of it as sort of an attractor, that we are a teleological attractor, that we are, evolution itself is being drawn towards this, this Omega Point, which, uh, might be thought of as akin to, uh, divine realization. Yes, I think, I think that's exactly what he refers to, and he, refers to the Omega point as a divine focus of mind, which occurs as a result of an evolutionary process. Now, I'd like to make one additional comment here. The eminent evolutionary biologist Julian Huxley, in his glowing endorsement of Tayar's book, The Phenomenon of Man, wrote that Tayar had introduced a new psychosocial or cultural evolution in place of the purely biological one, and that through Tayar's work, human beings have become business managers for the future of the whole of cosmic evolution. So here is an example of us not just being uh, spectators, but actors in the great drama of uh, of uh, creation and cosmogenesis. The the term newosphere developed by Teilhard uh, earlier we compared it to Jung's collective unconscious, but it would also I think include uh, all of conscious human culture as well. Absolutely, absolutely. We act upon the world through our endowment with reflective consciousness. Actors, not spectators, as I may have said a little earlier. 
In other words, we are participating in the evolutionary process by by virtue of our culture. Yes. We're active participants, we're active concelebrants in the emergence of culture with God, co-creating with God, if you like, co-evolving with God. And and another um, person who seems to have been a, an inspiration to you, the physicist David Bohm, who talks about the implicate order, and I think it's Bohm who also went a little further and said that uh, human beings represent uh, a mirror to the universe reflecting back so that the universe can come to understand itself. Yes. Uh, David Bohm's comment, I think, if I can remember it accurately, was that consciousness is the mirror the universe has evolved to reflect upon itself and in which its very existence is revealed. And he wrote about, as you know, uh, human beings participating in a mind indefinitely beyond that of the human species as a whole. Well, well, he probably didn't have a language. He might as well have been referring to the collective unconscious of Carl Jung or Tao's noosphere. What you're proposing then in terms of a a theology is that there's an aspect of of the divine within each human being that uh, in in effect our consciousness is like a uh, spark of the divine fire yes we carry the divine fire uh, which breathes life into the equations of quantum physics uh, within us as in Jungian, Jung's terms uh, the God archetype or the unconscious Imago Dei. And, and the very fact that we are capable of uh, imagining Imago Dei, imagining it, the image of, of the Godhead is, is a way that connects us in, in, in a deep sense, deeper probably than most people are ever conscious of, uh, with what I would call actual God. Well, Indeed, yes, and I'm very much uh, enthralled by Roderick Main's notion of, uh, or stated in Latin first, there being a deus implicitus, that is implicit in cosmology and evolution, which becomes a deus explicitus, explicit, in and through the consciousness of reflectively conscious human beings. So that, that God is very much imminent, and within us, and yet transcending us. There's something more, as Roderick Maine would say, and that's something more for Roderick, and I agree with him, was Jung's notion of the transcendent God archetype, which transcends space, time, and causality. And I suppose culture, because right now it strikes me that when you when you talk about theologies, we have you know Western culture, Eastern culture, Islamic culture. They all subscribe to different images of the deity, but those images are culture bound. And if one wishes to uh, develop a, a theology which would be consistent with science, it has to pay uh, much more attention to logic and empirical evidence than uh, to culture. Yes, I agree with you. And as Jung put it, the divine cannot be known through empiricism and reason alone. There is something left over, something transcendent, something mysterious, which perhaps we shall never fully understand in our finiteness. Which, which is a limit of all theology. Yes, yes, yes. And taking what you were saying about the different 
theisms or faith traditions, including those of the East, I suspect that the, the important common factor there, apart from the philosophies and the theological ideas or systems of belief erected around, erected as these religious systems of thought, is the mystical experience itself, which if you read the accounts of the mystics from both East and West, as Jung did, are extraordinarily similar, almost uncannily so. They all seem to be describing essentially the same experience of the union mystica or union with the divine. I think that the belief systems of various religious traditions are like the tip of the iceberg in relation to the whole, and the foundation of all of them is the mystical union with the, the divine. Peter, I'm under the impression that uh, amongst academic scholars of mysticism, uh, strongly influenced by the uh, postmodern tradition in philosophy these days, deconstruction, uh, they tend to reject the idea that the mystics of each culture are describing the same thing. In, in, in fact, they go so far as to say, we don't even know what they were describing because uh, they're using language which was peculiar to them, describing something ineffable that we don't really understand. So, uh, m most postmodern scholars of mysticism seem to be of the view that uh, every mystic uh, is describing something different, that that we live in what William James called a, a pluralistic universe, and and they reject the Aldous Huxley's notion of, uh, uh, or Houston Smith's notion of the perennial philosophy. I suspect that a lot of these contentious ideas about the nature of the mystical are from people who probably haven't read Jung and his description of the mystical experience, all 20 volumes of it. They haven't read Teilhard de Chardin or people like Roderick Main, and that they are probably still consciously or unconsciously affected by the uh, scourge of metaphysical materialism in their critique. They have their own religion or belief system, even if it's a materialistic one and one that's rather dismissive of mystical experience. I mean, one only has to exert the intellectual discipline and to read the accounts of the mystics from East and West, which Jung had and I have as well, to actually see those similarities for oneself. One actually has to read the sources, what the mystics themselves have both said and written. I did have the opportunity to uh, interview one of these new scholars uh, engaged in the field of transpersonal psychology, uh, and I'm under the impression that a lot of what inspired him uh, to take a more pluralistic view is, is the idea that um, shamans and uh, indigenous people develop a mysticism which is sort of nature-based. The idea of, yes. you know, our unity with all of nature and that uh, that was very different than uh, the kind of mysticism where where people talk about unity and God and, and, and somehow God is higher and above nature. I don't think God is anywhere to be found, not even in heaven, as Wolfgang Pauli has put it. I mean, the experience of the transcendent God archetype is one that transcends space, time, and causality. Jung and Pauli believed, and Tao did, and so do I. At the same time, I know you're very concerned about uh, the evolutionary process and our relationship to nature. Absolutely. 
And I think what you were saying, just to refer back to the comment that you made about indigenous cultures, I suspect that there are human groups in the world who are to be highly valued for their traditions, and we should be hearing them. But the kind of spirituality that they're referring to is a form of animistic spirituality where everything is endowed with soul and probably on the basis of unconscious projection of what we would call in Jungian terms the uh, collective unconscious and that's not in any way to derogate those traditions but it is to see that they're a form of uh, an animistic belief system and that itself can be mystical their sense of connectedness to the earth and to uh, the country I don't think there's any necessary contradiction this particular scholar I'm, I'm referring to, Jorge Ferrar, uh, a transpersonal psychologist, uh, seemed to feel that uh, what he was arguing against was might have been a, a kind of uh, hierarchy where people uh, argue that that some forms of mysticism are, are more elevated than others. Well, I think that's a categorical mistake. If one's had a mystical experience, uh, from whatever cultural background, whether European or indigenous or whatever, it's the actual mystical experience itself that is important. And I think that's where we find the expression of the archetype. Now, if there is an archetypal, God archetypal basis to mystical experience, that's going to be manifest in the consciousness of different cultures and of indigenous people as well. They just have different languages to describe essentially the same experience. I see, I still keep coming back to the notion of the God archetype implicit in cosmology and evolution. I think there are just different ways that human beings have discovered of uh, talking about that and expressing it. I think it was in our previous interview, you pointed out that Jung said it's not possible to distinguish between the um, archetype of God and an actual God. Mm-hmm. And and I think he also made the point that the the Godhead archetype is really the archetype of the self, the the, the deep source of each individual consciousness. Yes, but the archetype of the self as a numinous archetype in the collective unconscious, not to be confused, as some people do, with uh, an inflated ego. I mean, we have a few examples of that trotting around the planet at the moment, uh, whose names I won't mention, but I think they're a potential menace. In fact, I think in Jungian psychology, uh, the idea of ego inflation, in fact, in probably every psychology, even in daily life, the idea of ego inflation is is considered one one of the uh, largest detriments to human evolution in general. I couldn't agree more, as well as having potentially very destructive effects. I mean, we only need to take phenomena that Jung himself referred to, like Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich in Nazi Germany, Joseph Stalin or Chairman Mao, as examples of people with massive, uh, frighteningly grandiose selves who murdered millions of people and who were very destructive to human beings. A genuine mystic could not possibly be like that. In fact, most genuine mystics are marked by their humility rather than their aggrandizement of self because they have this sense of the finiteness of who they are in comparison with the 
Jung said, you know, something infinite. The tricky thing here is to acknowledge and honor the divine spark without uh, letting the uh, ego uh, gain, uh, use that as an opportunity for its own enhancement. I, I quite agree. I quite agree. And I think genuine mystics, including even people like Carl Jung and Wolfgang Pauli and Tayar and many, many others, even those going back into the Middle Ages, like Hildegard of Bingen, for example, who Jung quoted in Symbols of Transformation, are noted by their humility and their empathy for other people. Now, somebody who's narcissistic, grandiose, and whose ego is inflated experiences no humility, nor are they capable of any empathy for other people or compassion. And you're speaking as a psychotherapist now, I presume. Yes. Well, I don't easily split myself into various parts, David. I'm a psychotherapist who also happens to be deeply mystical and a voice for this emerging evolutionary process theology, which is leaving the old notion of an external God bound by dogmas behind an evolutionary process, however. And you you also focus on a term, entheogenic. Am I saying it correctly? Yes, yes. I think that's a, a word for the uh, divinization of the world and the cosmos. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you know, theos is the Greek word for God. So you would say that we're going through a process of uh, divinization, Mm-hmm. Co-created divinization, yes. The fact, I suppose, that probably a million people or more have now had a an actual death experience, such as yourself, and have been revived from it, uh, is one example of that? Yes. And, of course, what's really notable, and I know you've interviewed people like Peter Fenwick, who've had quite a lot of experience as neuropsychiatrists with people who've had uh, actual death experiences, What's notable is that none of them is stark raving mad. They're quite sane. Because there have been a lot of attempts to discredit NDEs on the basis of, uh, you know, they must have some neurodegenerative disorder or be crazy. Well, you know, in fact, how I got into this field that that we both share, uh, when I was an undergraduate in college, I decided to write a senior honors thesis on the psychology of religious mysticism. And my thinking at the, as I started that process was there must be some form of psychopathology involved that uh, causes people to imagine that they have uh, communication with the dead or mystical experiences, but as as I looked into it more and more, I encountered the work of Abraham Maslow, who noted that people who have had mystical experiences are are typically very high functioning individuals. In fact, he interviewed people like Eleanor Roosevelt and uh, Albert Einstein, some of the most highly accomplished people on the planet and found that they typically reported mystical experiences as as being the basis of uh, their careers and their life choices. Yes, well as you know as you know Jeff Abraham Maslow in writing about self-actualizing people he did a lot of research into them did make that comment that whilst being perfectly sane most of them did have some sense of uh, mystical experience or connection with something beyond themselves, something transcendent. Yeah. They certainly weren't insane. Or 
nor did they have craziness imputed to them, as uh, some people did. That's why we hid our ideas in these schools of radical behaviourism, and those, those ideas were forbidden. I remember being told by one lecturer that if I ever dared submit an essay on Jung, I could be guaranteed a failure. I mean, that was just an example of attitude. Well, I'm I'm well aware of that. Jung is, uh, and Freud are hardly ever taught in the universities anymore. When I was an undergraduate uh, at the University of Wisconsin, we actually had a student strike in the psychology department, and, and one of our demands was they should institute a course on Freud. Mm-hmm. Well, at Sydney University, when I was an undergraduate, Freud was mentioned only in the most disparaging terms in the course on personality theory, and Jung was not mentioned at all. And I, under the impression, in spite of the vast influence, Jung and Freud are two of the most influential thinkers of the 20th century, uh, they're, they're still largely excluded from uh, academic discussions. A prophet is not without honour except in his own country. I would see uh, Jung, uh, and, and in a way Freud, but particularly Jung and Paul and uh, David Bohm and Tan de Chardin as being prophetic voices in many ways, or if you like, conduits for the unconscious expressing itself in the world. You make a big point of the uh, convergence of depth psychology and uh, quantum physics these days, and not just quantum physics, but all of uh, modern physics as, as well. It, I know it <laughs> it's a burgeoning field. Uh, and you're suggesting that a, a new theology will honor that convergence rather than to, to try and sweep it under the rug. You see, I think with the gradual collapse of religious institutions and the demise of the old dogmatic theologies based upon ideas of the mental universe, these old theologies are being replaced by a now emerging evolutionary and panentheistic theology, which I've already referred to and championed by people like Roderick Main and Essex, as they were indeed by Jung and Pauli and David Bohm and his disciples. One of the other uh, strong features of the theology that you're developing is uh, dual aspect monism, the idea mm -hmm. uh, that we discussed in our first interview of uh, that neither mind nor matter is reducible to the other, but they both represent uh, aspects uh, of an underlying reality that Jung would have called unus mundus. Yes. Well, mind and matter are both uh, necessary and mutually exclusive, though irreducible to one another, and emerge by symmetry breaking in Jung Pauli's scheme uh, from an underlying unus mundus, from which, however, it's said that uh, the mental is approached by Jung's collective unconscious and the material by quantum non-locality. And uh, I think I said in the first interview as well that David Bowen's implicate order is essentially a restatement of the same principles. So what we have here, when Bohm refers to the in implicate order and other physicists uh, talk about the quantum reality and uh, the idea that physics itself is is reaching into realms that one might say are beyond, uh, certainly beyond the four-dimensional space-time matrix that we normally think of, maybe yes. entirely beyond space and time. Uh, absolutely. Transcending space, time, and causality, as Roderick Main put it in one of his papers. 
on disenchantment with traditional theisms. That's where physics and uh, depth psychology come together, is is this mapping out of a uh, a space <laughs> beyond space, a time beyond time, uh, a... Uh, uh, I suppose when we're getting now into areas that really are ineffable. Yes, and also I think another way of putting that would be to use Jung's own phrase. He was very fond of this one, the conjunctio oppositorum, the union of opposites. And if you think of the opposites as previously being, you know, uh, the schism between science and religion that has lasted for 400 years, which since the quantum revolution, various people have uh, attempted to repair and restore. So I think we are experiencing in our our lifetimes uh, the beginnings of this conjunctio oppositorum or restored wholeness to the world. Well, I'm certainly under the impression, Peter, that your your work, and in particular your book, The Individuation of, of God, is a very important step in in that direction, but it's a process that will take, I, I should think, a century or more to really unfold. Yes. Well, the book was published, as you probably know, by Chiron, which is an arm of the Asheville Jung Center. And Murray Stein, who was one of the founders of the Asheville Jung Center, wrote a book which I read called Jung's Treatment of Christianity. And in the penultimate chapter of that book, Murray Stein quotes Jung as having a conversation with one of his uh, peers, whose name I can't recall at the moment. But Jung's idea was that the emergence of the new religion of which he was laying, he actually said, I am one of the ones laying the foundations. This would take about 300 years. Now, this is back in Jung's time when he was writing of that process requiring several centuries to be completed. To me, that's a realistic expectation, uh, especially, especially, frankly, as I think of your life. And, uh, you know, you were a young man and, and were asked to go through conversion therapy. Aversion therapy, actually. Painful electric shocks, chemical castration and other horrors. So you you have uh, seen a lot of uh, social evolution around that particular issue in your lifetime. I've seen a lot, and I've attempted to be an agent in bringing it about within my own limited resources. Well, and and you're going uh, much further now than just dealing with uh, issues concerning uh, sexuality and gender. You're really looking at uh, the depths of the human soul, which frankly seems quite appropriate to me. I agree. It's about what it is to be human and to be connected to the anima mundi, to have soul and connection with the numinous reality within and beyond ourselves. Peter Todd, this has been a uh, joyful conversation, truly, a a very optimistic one. I want to thank you for being with me and encourage our uh, viewers to take a look at your book, The Individuation of God. I I see it as a very hopeful uh, exploration that uh, will be of great importance as, as we move forward. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. And I believe that realistic optimism and contributing creatively to the world rather than being destructive is one of the aftermaths or after effects of the NDE. Mm-hmm.